Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn, I just want to wish you all a lovely Easter. Ten years ago in 2011, Padraig Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we love it. All our events are now on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you, all told at various Zoom events this year. Our first story comes from 10by9 co-founder, Padraig Tuma. He told us at our March event when the theme was viral. We teamed up with the Imagine Festival of Politics and Ideas. Oh, there are a couple of F-bombs, but Padraig uses them well. Take it away, P. It was the winter of 1997, Dublin. I was living in a large household of young people. We were all church workers, and I was leading a course where international people would come to Ireland for six months, get some teaching on religion, and then do youth work in parishes or dioceses around the country. Living in a large household was a laugh. I mean, it was cramped. There were very few bathrooms, almost no money, a really restricted food budget, and the religion could sometimes be pretty oppressive. But apart from that, there was great crack. A bunch of us loved music, so there were impromptu jam sessions all the time. The folks who were living in that house that year were a lot of fun. There were practical jokes and international friends and walks around Griffith Avenue, walks the four miles into the city. Few of us could afford the bus. There was a lot going for it. There was a big main room, the main lounge, we called it. And there was always a few crowds of people in that book-lined room. Somebody playing a game, somebody knitting, somebody learning the guitar, somebody telling a story, somebody praying in the corner, somebody else flirting in a corner. Shoulder massages were a big thing. And then the winter of 1997. It was the first week of January. Plenty of people had gone off to a home, bringing a foreigner with them for a few days over Christmas. But by and large, people were keen to be back in the company of that mad and brilliant household for New Year. Things weren't starting back up until the 4th or the 5th of January, so people wanted a few days together. But a bad flu went around the household. And it wasn't the kind of flu where you feel a bit off and then you watch videos all day. It was the kind of flu where you got dizzy and shivering and sweating and a bit delirious and an awful, awful cough. Everyone got it. For better or worse, everyone crowded into that main lounge. Videos were put on. Somebody would be shivering under a duvet in a corner. Two patients would be playing footsie under a shared duvet in another corner. There was one Welsh man who brought tea and soup to everybody faithfully for days. And he used to say, as soon as he walked into the room, I'd claim my health in the name of Jesus over and over when he walked in the room. And to be fair, the fucker never got sick. Some smart arse put a sign up with the infirmary on the door to the main lounge. And that's what it was called thereafter. Some days of that infirmary were hilarious. We were watching a film once and a funny part happened and everyone laughed and then everyone coughed because 24 out of the 27 of us in the house were sick with this awful flu. And then everyone laughed at everyone coughing and people coughed even more. After a while though, people got ratty with each other. The time in the infirmary seemed to go on for a week but I'm guessing it was only two or three days. People, by and large, were kind to each other. And one by one, people began to get better. 
except for two people. There were two of us, Wendy and me, who couldn't shake it. We weren't coughing or shivering or shaking anymore, but that first day back at work after a bad dose of the flu feeling never went. Always the aches and pains and dizziness and a feeling of total exhaustion. I was leading the course that had the people over from all over the world. And we had, we'd had classes about religion and we were now supposed to be going off around the country with an atrocious religious play called The Toymaker. It was about the toymaker, i.e. God, and the toymaker's son, i.e. Jesus. The toymaker and his son had made all these lovely toys, but then the toys rebelled and the toy maker's son decided to become a toy so he could redeem all the toys. And then the toys, the nasty fuckers, hated the toy maker's son, so they killed him. And apparently that was the good news. We were to travel with this Christian theatre experience around Ireland in two seriously decrepit minibuses, visiting youth groups and churches and parishes and schools, my God. We'd rock up in Wexford or Belfast or Clare Galway or Limerick or Tullamore or Cork around lunchtime, eat whatever sandwiches we had, maybe have an hour or two to hang around and then we'd have to get ready. Because this being a piece of theatre, we had costumes and bad makeup. There was a particular group of toys called the Bears and they were the ones who really murdered Jesus. They had to back comb their hair and put on makeup. Everyone put on makeup. There was a Spanish dancer doll, a sailor, that was me, costumes and makeup for all. And deluded though we were, and utterly inadequate as the whole story of the drama was, we did have a lot of fun. Nobody had lines to remember, just dance moves to remember, because the whole drama was recorded on a single tape, a cassette tape. And we had a two-deck ghetto blaster that would be carried around with us like it was precious cargo. The music and the soundtrack was as bad as the costumes. And after eight weeks on the road, that cassette was near its end. We slept mostly on the floors of youth centers or in parish centers, a sleeping bag, a jumper rolled up for a pillow, a camping mat on the floor. I think there were three nights in that eight weeks when I slept in a bed, and my God, the luxury. I was exhausted all the time though, and so was Wendy. Neither of us could kick that virus. And whenever I could, I'd lie down. I was leading this group of people, although to be fair, it was a lovely group of people. When it was all over, I think I slept for a week and was still tired. And Wendy was the same, still those aches and pains, still that exhaustion and the dizziness, my God. It was like walking around on the deck of a ship and nausea came with that, it was awful. I went to a doctor. I don't know why you're here, he said to me. Nothing wrong with you. You're making it up. That was 1997. And all that year, it continued on. I'd work. I could put in a day's work. But then I'd go to bed at seven and sleep till around seven and get up still tired. The same with 1998 and 1999 and 2000. Wendy and I were good friends. She had joined me up for the newsletters of the ME Society or chronic fatigue syndrome, as some people call it. I felt embarrassed to have these strange symptoms and this strange illness. I could work. I could put in a fairly good day's work. And I was continuing to work with the religious group and had moved around with it. But after a day's work, I couldn't stay up. I just have to lie down and I wouldn't be able to get up till the morning, still tired to start again. 
I continue to go to doctors, so many doctors, some of them lovely, some of them wankers. They discovered eventually that my immune system was 10 times too overactive and they put me on drugs to regulate it. And that worked for a while and then it stopped working. And that was the beginning of a time of into symptoms and out of symptoms. Maybe a few months of feeling great and then a few more months of feeling pretty rough and then back to a few months of feeling pretty great back and forth. But gradually, as a few more years went by, the months of feeling good increased. There was no miraculous cure from this virus for me, just a realization that it had been six weeks since a bad week, or my God, six months. Once after I'd been well for about two years, I got a flu again. And I remember weeping with absolute panic at the return of those awful symptoms. While the flu was a bad one again this time, and it did stick around for three weeks, when it lifted, I was back to normal, feeling great. Wendy was the only one I felt like I could talk to properly during those years because she understood what it was like to want to work hard and then pay the price. What it was like to hear, well, you look fine from loads of people when actually you were leaning against a wall because you worried you'd collapse. I was 21 when I got this mystery virus and near enough to 30 by the time I thought, oh, I'm better now. I've hidden away for most of this last year. The idea of COVID or God almighty long COVID is enough to send me into pure panic. I never want another virus again. Thank you very much, Patrick. And that was a fabulous story. Can I just very quickly acknowledge the seriousness of your illness, but can I now rewind please to what, what school in its right mind would allow a bunch of idiots in to perform that play? Toy Maker and Son. Actually, just to let people know earlier on today, I put Toy Maker and Son into YouTube and found a recording from 1985. And it is awful. It is, it is terrible. It's like rock gospel meets really, really bad manipulative religion. And I think mostly it was any school at all that thought there's a bunch of Egypts who were going to come and entertain all of our children in four back-to-back -back performances of this shite for a day. We can catch up on all of our paperwork and lump all of our kids into the school auditorium and close the doors and they'll all be grand. So that's the kind of school, which was basically every single school all around Ireland. I was delighted to have free periods so the teachers could smoke cigarettes <laughs> or catch up with their work. And tell us, you were, what was that part you played again? Oh, I was the sailor. Yeah, I didn't have much to do because I was leading the, the entire group. So, you know, I had lots of organization to do. I had to, I had this stripy uniform and these big um, uh, kind of rosy cheeks. And I'd have to do this little sailor dance um, all, across the, all across the stage at one point. It was pretty awful. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I would recommend um, that you go and, and check out. You, honestly, you couldn't stick more than about three <laughs> minutes of it, but it is worth. Zandy Craig has actually put the link into uh, the chat. It is worth uh, a few minutes. And then bear in mind, the version you will you see is um, from what this youth with a mission called their Academy of Performing Arts. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Yeah. And bear in mind that this was being performed by some Hylians in from County Cork. So yeah, I know. I was I was is... looking at that Toy Maker and Son video earlier on thinking, my God, they were tight. And when you look at it, you go, they were not tight. They were bloody awful. <laughs>
Ah, uh, thanks so much, Podrick. And yes, indeed, everyone should check out The Toymaker and His Son. And thanks for the title of this week's pod, Pod. And you can see Podrick telling that story on our YouTube channel, where you can watch practically all the stories from our Zoom events in bite-sized chunks, going right back to April of last year. Okay, next up is a story that was told at an event in February, where he teamed up with LGBT Heritage NI and the group Working With Pride. The theme was Body, Mind, Spirit, and here's first-timer Sally Bridge. In one glance, she took in my sweaty, hairy body and with a dismissive sniff declared, you've got it on upside down. I've always had a difficult relationship with the clothes that I put on my body. As a child, the only dress I wanted to wear was that of an altar boy. In fact, at the age of nine, I built up the courage to ask my priest if I could have one, if I could become one. The next time I attended early morning mass, he beckoned me over to the vestry, heart pounding, kind of like now. I made my way across the church, fumbling a quick genuflection in my hurry to realize my dream. Once inside this hallowed ground, I saw that the priest was there with his altar boys in all their wonderful regalia. The priest bent down to my ear and whispered, so you want to be an altar boy? Yes, I replied, breathless with anticipation. Well, you can't, he said. And the altar boy sniggering in the background, he ushered me back into the church, my humiliation complete. I hated wearing dresses and skirts and resisted wearing them from the moment I had a choice. There's a photo of me looking incredibly sulky on a visit to my grandma as I was forced to wear a long flowing flowery skirt with a vest top sewn onto it and a gorgeous. I was not a happy chappy and felt very exposed. On another photograph, however, I'm glowing with radiant bliss as I was allowed to wear the same type of high-waisted button-up flares as my big brother. Well, it was the 70s, but I was chucked to bits and I can still remember the nylon fabric swishing around my legs with a feeling of pride and belonging. Given my preferred look of jeans and a t-shirt, I guess it was hardly surprising that I would often be mistaken for a boy. At a disco in the local village hall, girls ran out screaming when I walked into their toilets. At the tender age of 11, having hit puberty early and already starting to need a bra, this was quite perplexing. Then my mum took me to get new shoes for starting big school. She asked for sturdy black school shoes and was horrified when the shop assistant brought out big boys brogues. As she sent the assistant back for more feminine wear, she turned to me and said, stick your chest out, love. <laughs> Secretly, I would have loved the brogues, but put up with the girly ones for the sake of peace. Luckily, going to a comprehensive school in the Northwest England, Girls wearing trousers was never an issue, so I was spared the indignities which must be suffered by butch girls at schools over here. While I would cheerfully admit as a young teenager that I was a tomboy, I struggled with the growing feeling that I was developing for people of the same sex. Looking back, I had serial crushes, which started with the blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl in primary school, who I stood up to protect against the school bullies. Then there was the older, more experienced teenager who told me about sex with boys and that wrist stroking was a surefire way of getting them going. I have no idea about that. I kind of knew about being gay, but it was something shameful. And despite my growing feelings, I was blissfully ignorant of the world around me. I hadn't the foggiest that Kenny Everett might be gay. And when I found out about Freddie Mercury, what a shock. I can't believe how naive I was. Not really knowing what to do with this side of me, I tried to fit in with the other girls. 
This involved torturous trips to the local market to buy dresses and skirts with my friend. Given that this was the 80s with the new wave style of flouncy collars and shoulder pads, this was never going to be a good look and left me feeling like I was in drag. But somehow, I don't know how, I managed to get a boyfriend and pass very well. At university, when it would have been the ideal time for me to embrace my true self, I found myself engaged to an Irishman. In hindsight, this and my long hair was all I needed to deflect attention from my androgynous looks, which would have quickly pegged me as a dyke these days. I did at some point have a go at wearing flowery skirts again, but that was only to get the attention of my latest girl crush. My secret desires burned deeply underneath. I persuaded a housemate to go and see Desert Hearts, a lesbian film showing at, at Filmsock. It was shown in a lecture theatre, and I think I gripped the front desk for the duration, carefully timing my swallows for the noisy moments. I was totally transfixed. Despite this deep awareness of myself, and having had two relationships with women by this time, I still never even considered the option of coming out for one second. This was just not for me. I began to prepare for my wedding after university. On the advice of my mom and sister, I found myself in a small underwear boutique where I'd been sent to purchase a Basque. I was terrified and sweating profusely by the time I had built up the courage to go in. After much deliberation about size, style and color, the shop assistant finally found the right Basque for me. She bundled me into the changing room, which to my horror was just a light piece of cotton curved around one corner of the shop. I stripped down and negotiated the contraption. After several minutes struggling, I had to ask for assistance. Only when she drew back the curtain in full view of the whole shop and anyone passing by outside, did I realize that I had six months worth of hairy growth on my legs and underarms and was wearing odd socks. She took one look at the mess in front of her, only to tut and announce I had it on upside down. So in 1990, I married the Irishman. I wore a flowing, puffy-sleeved, cinch-waisted ivory wedding dress and was correctly squished into the basque. I did love him, but in hindsight, it was the love for a friend. Five years later, I left him. I was pregnant and coming out to the world. That is definitely another story. Being mistaken for a boy or a man has continued to dog me throughout my life, particularly when I shaved off my long hair. Over the years, I have perfected the art of deflecting potential embarrassment and passing it straight back. Once in my early 30s, while paying for a CD, the shop assistant took my bank card back to his manager. The manager came over to me and in front of the whole store declared smugly, this card says Miss Sally Bridge. I was wearing a baggy bomber jacket over a vest stop. So I calmly unzipped my jacket, looked him in the eye and said, yes. His customer service skills went into overdrive after that, I can tell you. Another occasion was on a trip to the Grand Opera House with my stepson's dad to watch Lab OM. On entering the toilets, it's always the toilets. On entering the toilets during the break, a very well-dressed woman with a plummy Cherry Valley accent barred my way, declaring loudly, this is the ladies, this is the ladies. To which I replied, yes, and these are breasts. Even last week at the recycling depot, the guy at the gate greeted with me, me with a, right mate, before becoming embarrassed as his gaze went behind the, behind the short hair and clothes to the finer features and he realized his mistake. My family and friends all forgot about the hair and the piercings as they see past them to the real me. For strangers, however, there's rarely a sense that they look beyond the front cover to find the reality of the book. So now I'm in my 50s. I've been with my partner for 20 years. 
I still hate dresses and loathe going to the women's clothing department where everything seems to have a frilly edge. I'm much happier shopping in the menswear department, but these tricky boobs invariably get in the way. So I'm about to become a grandmother and also the mother of the groom. The grandmother the bit, bit I can cope with. I am ready, willing and able. But what the hell do I wear as mother of the groom? Sally, thank you very much. What are you going to wear? That's what we want to know. I was thinking I might go back to the, uh, the flared trousers <laughs> that I was wearing there. <laughs> yeah, very good. Sally, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure the big day will go well, whatever you wear. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. And if you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now here's our third story. It was her second time at the 10 by 9 mic. It was February and the theme was experiment. Here's Jacqueline Gale. I climbed a tree on Saturday and on Sunday I sat on a bench. I was halfway through writing this story on Saturday morning when I hit the big wall of grief. That's a hard wall at the best of times and in lockdown, believe me, it's been tough. Anyway, I decided to get out for my daily walk. So I grabbed my camera and I went in search of a kingfisher I'd seen on the river a few weeks ago. Of course, as any amateur bird watcher knows, there is a direct negative correlation between having a camera with you and your chances of seeing a bird. Your chances decrease the more prepared you are. So there I was, hunkered down by a stone wall out of the wind, when I spotted not a kingfisher, but a lovely bulky tree halfway down the riverbank. I watched it for a while, hoping a bird would land. And eventually I gave up on the bird and decided I would perch in it instead. The lower branch was an easy step up from the bank into a cluster of reasonably sized branches all around the trunk, but it wasn't as easy as it had looked and there was only room for one foot at a time in the space between the branches. So I had one foot up on the trunk and the other I had to jiggle around an inch at a time to get into position so that I could lean back onto the branch that was stretching out over the river. It was at about 50 degrees to the horizontal, not too steep and not too high, just right. So I lay back and looked up through the dead centre of the tree. I was a wee bit self-conscious, I have to admit, but I was enjoying myself and my mood had lifted. That is until the wind gusted and I felt the whole tree move to accommodate the push. I could hear it creaking. I could also hear my mum saying, Jacqueline, what are you doing up a tree at your age? Get down now before you fall and break your neck. I got down. I spent Sunday afternoon on a bench, but I was still thinking about experiments. If you turned 50 any time in the last 10 years, you might have taken part in the same social experiment I took part in back in the 1970s. <clears throat> Not that any of us knew we were taking part in an experiment. There were no consent forms and certainly no idea that we could withdraw at any time without giving a reason, without consequence. This particular experiment was called Lessons Learned. The experiment ran in two phases. Phase one was called School, Know Your Place. And it ran from the 1st of September to the 30th of June. 
It was staffed by strict authoritarians, supplemented with nuns, priests, vicars, ministers, and the occasional bishop. Participants wore school uniform and followed school rules to the letter. Don't be late. Walk, don't run. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Don't forget your PE kit, your homework, your dinner money, your lunchbox. Stand up when a teacher comes in, sit down, sit up straight, put your hand up, put your hand down, draw a line under the date. Don't get above yourself. Don't rub out your mistakes, cross them out so you know you got it wrong first time. It was quite tiring. Phase two of the experiment lasted for eight weeks from the 1st of July until the 31st of August. And this part was called Summer Holidays, Children Minding Children. Children of all ages gathered in gangs of up to 20 after their breakfast. Everyone was dressed in their own clothes and came with an assortment of bikes, scooters, skateboards, prams, homemade go-karts, we called them bogeys, footballs, dolls, sticks, windmills, and maybe some chalk or bubbles if you were lucky. On sunny days, the ginger ones would be plastered in sun cream. The method was, children went out in the morning to play and came home for their tea at five. You didn't speak to an adult unless you had to. You didn't ask permission. You ran everywhere and only walked if you were carrying something heavy with a few of the gang back to the den. Making and having a den was obligatory. Destroying someone else's den was also obligatory. We had grass fights when the council cut the grass, walked the top edge of the fences for a dare, fell in the nettles and picked primroses in the ditch. On wet days, we sang songs in the phone box, put a tent up in the garden or took turns to be locked in the cupboard by the side door where the bins should have been. It was some crack. My first time taking part in summer holidays, children minding children, was in 1973. And the outcome for me, my big brother and my two sisters, was an increased knowledge of the hedgehog. I was six and instead of staying at Granny's, I was allowed to play out all day with my big sister Sharon in charge. She was 12. We, i.e. the gang, were out walking the roads and finding things in ditches and putting them in a basket. One of the things we put in the basket that day was a hedgehog. Sharon carried it home and instead of staying out until tea time, we took it inside and let it run around the living room. It kept trying to hide and we kept finding it and lifting it back out into the middle of the room to watch it run back under the table again. We had rabbits and dogs, so I thought the hedgehog would fit in and be our new pet. We probably argued about what to call it and who it belonged to. It wasn't long till we found out. Mummy came home and as soon as we told her what we had found, she went mad. I didn't really know about swearing then and it sounded like she was praying. Dear God, what do I have to do to get a bit of peace? And holy mother of God, what on earth possessed you to bring that thing in here? And Mary and Joseph get it picked up now and out of this house. None of us were called Mary or Joseph, but Sharon got it picked up and in the basket and put a tea towel over it. She was marched off back up the green road to put it back where she found it. Mummy was raging. In between prayers, there were lessons. Hedgehogs of fleas. This hedgehog was a mummy hedgehog. The babies would be eaten by the fox. We'd have to have the house fumigated. None of us had an ounce of sense. I cried. A sure way of raising mum's temperature was to ask her if she remembered the day we brought the hedgehog home. 
Whoever had asked would be laughing and the rest of us would be in shock, waiting for another barrage of prayer swearing. Over the years, she gradually saw the funny side and in one of those conversations told us that she had been a real tomboy growing up and that Granny was always in despair about the state she would come home in, ripped clothes and how she was always covered in scratches from climbing trees or filthy from lighting fires. It made sense that Mum had been a tomboy. She did all the DIY in our house, the decorating, the gardening, changing light bulbs, the cooking and the cleaning. The only thing she didn't do back then was drive, but she passed her test before she turned 50. The last big snowball fight she had would have been when she was about 40. We watched her chase the local teenage hard man, rugby tackle him to the ground and rub snow in his face because he had thrown snowballs at us, the Wayans, that were too hard and too sore. There is a tree that she wanted to climb in the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. She didn't climb it, but I went there on Sunday and sat on a bench that reads, in loving memory of Margaret Rose. It's in a field lined with trees. Maybe next time I hit the big wall of grief, I'll climb one of them and then sit on her bench. Ah, Jacqueline, what a beautiful, beautiful story and such a wonderful tribute to your mother. Thank you. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at Tambanang, go along to the guidelines page on our website, tambanang.com, and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 give us a rating and maybe even a short review. It helps get us noticed. Or just drop us a line to say hello to our email address, story at 10 by 9com or all the usual social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out Podrick's new project, The Cory Mila Podcast, and you can get that at all the usual podcasty places. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Dorn, so all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.